Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. I feel like that interview completely changed my perspective on stalking. The following episode contains discussion about stalking and violence against women. Please listen with caution. This is Anatomy of a Stalker. I'm Rachira Sharma, a journalist investigating the rise of stalking in the UK. If you missed the previous episodes of the series, you can go back and listen now. So how are you feeling about this recording? Yeah, I'm looking forward to this recording especially because I think I really want to know what kind of treatment somebody would recommend for a stalker. It feels like this really big unknown as to, we know stalkers exist, but I have no idea how you stop somebody from doing that. That seems like a huge question that's never really been known to me. And this, I think there's at the moment this kind of wider understanding of what things like addiction can mean, you know, people can be quote unquote addicted to stamp collecting, but is this, you know, another version of addiction? Is it addiction to compulsively following or checking or is this something really different? Is this, you know, is this obsession? I'd be really interested to know if you treat it in the same way as you would a kind of physical addiction. And also, is there a real possibility of people reforming from stalking? I don't know. It'd be interesting to know, is there a real route for people to become a stalker and, you know, get out of that and enter into mainstream society and not reoffend? And just in terms of the high reoffending rate, I think that's why we are struggling to get access to a quote-unquote reform stalker because that whole concept is a bit iffy, I think. yeah. Oh, yeah, it does. I wonder if we'll ever get there. It does seem like chasing this like near impossible, doesn't it, a bit? My chat with our producers got me thinking. Considering the devastating psychological and physical effects of stalking on victims, prevention is surely better than a cure. It's what we all want, right? To stop people from committing horrible crimes against someone else. But is this really possible for stalking? I'm having a hard time imagining what that could look like. Can I start by asking you, where are you today? Upstairs in my office, because it was a little bit easier than trying to find somewhere in the police station, which wouldn't be... Interrupted. Dr. Alan Underwood works at two initiatives set up to engage with stalking offenders. He's a clinical psychologist at the National Stalking Clinic and principal clinical psychologist at the Stalking Threat Assessment Centre. 
So the stalking clinic itself is a national service. We take referrals from um, the parole board and um, prisons, the probation service na- uh, nationally. And that often involves us uh, going out often as a, a pair, so a psychiatrist, a psychologist to assess individuals who've been referred to us really with a view to giving some expert advice around the presentation of the stalking behaviour, the risks that are perhaps attached to it, and then thinking about recommendations for for interventions uh, around the stalking to, to reduce the risk of harm. New figures show that cases of stalking in London almost doubled in the last year. So serious is the problem that the Met Police have announced a new stalking threat assessment centre aimed at helping both stalker and victim. The Stalking Threat Assessment Centre, or STAC, is part of the North London Mental Health Partnership. A multi-agency service has been in operation for five years and aims to improve the response to stalking across both criminal justice and health within the Metropolitan Police Force areas. The team reviews up to a thousand cases per month. What sort of interventions are common practices within those services? We have a, a range of interventions. There's sort of a indirect kind of route for interventions, which is our consultation kind of model and, and advice model. So this is really aimed at increasing a practitioner's awareness and confidence in recognising stalking recognising what the key elements are in terms of the risks. And when we're working with our probation colleagues who are supervising people in the community, really thinking about how they can effectively use their supervision to address the the needs that uh, are driving the offending. In terms of direct interventions, uh, a big part of the interventions that we will provide is the sort of detailed assessment of the stalking behaviour and then the, the clinical kind of advice around how to start to reduce the risks, what those risks are and how to tackle the areas of risk that are going to be the most pertinent for that individual. And then we have the sort of psychologically informed intervention, which is is the part of, I guess, kind of my job, which I spend a, a large proportion of my time delivering that sort of direct intervention with those who have been convicted of stalking. We take a, a psychologically informed approach to, to stalking and there are some broad kind of goals for the, the intervention really, which is first of all to really get a functional understanding of that stalking behaviour. So what are the drivers? What is the history that's perhaps led someone to be in the position they are where the stalking behaviour is the way that they're trying to solve that problem? And, and we take the position, which is sort of borne out by, by the literature, that, that stalking itself is it's a set of behaviours. It's not a diagnosis on its own. It's not a mental health disorder, although those elements may be present to greater or lesser degrees. But it's really a goal-directed behaviour. It has a function. It's trying to achieve something for that individual who's engaging in that behaviour. So the first step is really understanding what that function is for the individual and that will vary between people and particularly between the different types of stalking. I find myself having to put on my clinical academic head when approaching this subject. It's difficult to imagine something so invasive and terrifying as stalking as having a function. It's not nice to think about that but in a clinical sense I guess I can understand that for stalkers this is not mindless behaviour. It has a goal, even if it's a selfish one. 
So a, an ex-partner stalker will perhaps have a very different motivation to someone who is seeking a relationship and is quite unskilled in terms of how they perhaps approach that um, kind of way to try and establish relationships or someone who has a grievance that they are trying to to get met those needs will be quite different so the sort of functional understanding is a really key sort of first step and then from there we'll build an intervention that kind of targets several areas so one really thinking about how those behaviors occur so what behaviors are there what are the emotional states that link with that stalking behavior what are the thoughts and cognitions that meet and engage with that stalking behaviour. So what are the thoughts that lead to someone intruding on someone's life in an unwanted way? And then thinking about the kind of way that perhaps person is using the behaviour to regulate how they're feeling. So this sort of broadly sort of self-regulation kind of element often we see with with individuals with, uh, that we work with and that's sort of my clinical experience is that the behavior is a way of often trying to manage an emotional state or a cognitive state and the technique that's being used is externally directed so rather than that person being able to perhaps sit with that emotion you know to find different ways to to manage it that doesn't involve an intrusive behavior they are intruding into someone's life in the expectation that that person will then respond to manage their their emotional state so it's the sort of things that we might hear when i you know working with people is that i only had to do this because of how they made me feel you know so if they didn't make me feel this way then i wouldn't have had to engage in this behavior but it was the only way i could do to not feel this way and the, and the other goal is is really about supporting someone to build a, a desire and a motivation to engage in a life without stalking as well. What we know from the behaviour and the research and the evidence when it's, it comes to fixation and obsession is this is something that, that often takes an individual's life up. It becomes their, their occupation in some ways. And certainly what we hear from, you know, the, the victims of stalking that we work with, you know, they really just want the behaviour to stop. And I guess that's what we want to try and do is find an effective long-term sustainable way that an individual can have their needs met that perhaps was driving the stalking but in a way that doesn't offend that doesn't cause harm to to others and and to the individual who's engaging in that behavior as well i've often felt over the years and campaigned a long time for this that this was the missing piece you know we'd see the perpetrator come out and re-offend again and again because we weren't dealing with the underlying behaviors so if there's an opportunity now where we work with health and bring that together and deal with the underlying behaviours, we might have a good chance of stopping the behaviour, stopping the impact on the victim. One question I have is, is there any overlap between addiction? We talk about obsession and fixation when it comes to stalking. Is there any overlap with treatment or how you approach addiction as you do with the fixation and obsession of stalking i think there is some sort of crossover that we do we do draw on particularly when we're thinking about the the triggers for the behavior when we're thinking about substance use often we might think about is that substance use triggered by a, a situational context so is it you know this is the road that you walk down or this is the routine you 
you have. So there can be those external kind of factors and also those internal factors. So is it an emotionally driven kind of action? So is it a way of managing when someone is feeling low, when they're feeling anxious, when they're feeling angry, whatever that emotion might be? So when we're working with individuals and we're thinking about building that life without stalking, partly uh, for some cases it might be thinking about, well, where are you spending your time? When does this behaviour happen? So is it when you're lonely and alone? Is that the trigger? And is then the compulsion to engage in that behaviour as a way of regulating it, which is externally, you know, intrusive onto somebody else? What do we replace that with? So, you know, if it's about travelling in a certain place or having a reminder of an individual, can we remove those reminders in a safe way that means that that emotional and that environmental trigger is more difficult to to access and then what do we replace it with so it's not just about removing behavior and and stopping it it's we've going got to ask the question of what are we replacing it with there is some evidence a little bit around this sort of compulsive element may well have a sort of slightly addictive element to it for some individuals in my experience it's it's broadly comes down to to often affect and a inability or or, or a reduced capacity to to manage stalking behavior is a bit like water filling a bucket you know and when it reaches the peak and overflows and that bucket's reached capacity that's where the, the intrusive behavior is so part of that work is thinking about how do we find taps to let water out of the bucket so it doesn't overfill but also thinking about, is there any concrete at the bottom of that bucket as well? Does someone's history, their experience, perhaps if they've got additional needs in terms of perhaps a a learning disability, a social communication problem, a a brain injury, for example, do those aspects also have an impact that we need to sort of factor in in treatment? How does the typology of stalking affect the kind of treatment you provide as well? It will sort of affect things in several ways. One is thinking about the nature of the the risks and associated. So, for example, when we're we're working perhaps with an ex-partner, there may be additional risks that we, we may need to factor in. And we know from that group that they are the group who are most likely to to engage in violence compared to to the other groups. So the rejected stalking arises in the context of the breakdown of a close relationship, usually former sexual intimate partners. The initial motivation for the stalking is uh, either attempting to reconcile the relationship or to exact some kind of revenge. So that would be an additional kind of aspect that we would filter into our intervention. We'd be thinking about the risk of violence we'd also be thinking about perhaps how unavoidable contact may be managed and that might be through shared children shared property family ties if it's a you know particular you know sort of local area and then we would be thinking about kind of again that the function for that person so in an ex-partner case would we be thinking is it about someone feeling abandoned and their response to sort of feeling abandoned and rejection and their inability to to manage that or is it a sense of perhaps more that they're entitled to a relationship in the way they feel that that should be done and that may be kind of influenced by individuals upbringing you know their own experiences and expectations of of roles of of men and women 
and there may also be a cultural element as well so again you know are there particularly shared views of, of how relationships should look what are the expectations perhaps from family and the communities that those individuals come from if we were working with someone who perhaps was seeking a relationship and there was perhaps a more a prominent presentation of a mental health disorder, say, for example, an, an intimacy seeker who often is seeking a relationship and has a, a belief that they're in a relationship or they're inevitably going to be in a relationship with the person that they're targeting. The intimacy seeker is really the category of people that stalk which arises out of a context of loneliness. That individual may have a diagnosis of a, of a psychotic disorder um, in our experience, most commonly, it would either be a persistent delusional disorder or sometimes called a sort of erotomanic delusional disorder, which is really a delusion of, of love. So that person feels that they are absolutely destined to be with that object and they will continue targeting that person until that is realised. In those cases, what we will often do in terms of the intervention, the emphasis may be initially on supporting that person into a, a mental health treatment and an effective treatment with their mental health team to address that um, psychotic disorder. So the, the understanding and the formulation being that, you know, if you directly address the the mental health disorder that's driving the behaviour, we can then reduce the risk of harm. So if that delusion is softened or it reduces in its intensity and that person is no longer acting and being driven by that behaviour, the risk to the victim would reduce down. And then it would give us the scope to think about kind of those other aspects that might filter into it, which may be emotional regulation, thinking about attachment, thinking about social skills or, you know, how to manage stress and cope, but also then thinking about how does the team kind of monitor and manage that case and what were perhaps the the risks of if those delusions or that intensity was starting to re-emerge, what might be the early signs and how might we intervene? But the emphasis may change slightly. You know, with good individuals who've perhaps got a grievance, we might be thinking about risks to organisations or to the kind of person or the people who represent that sense of grievance. So often the, the resentful in stalking uh, individuals will target institutions, organisations, complaints. And it may well be that we also think within our intervention a bit more around how is that individual managed within the services? So how are complaints responded to in an appropriate and robust way and a consistent way? How do we think about, you know, where the risks are in terms of that management? Are there other services that may help and, and support with management in terms of that element as well? I can't help but think of the organisations we've approached in our hope to speak to a stalker. Many of them involve domestic abuse frontline workers. Could we be putting them at risk during this investigation? To some people listening to this, they might think that the idea of, you know, engaging with talking therapies for stalkers... A lot of people, I think, would be surprised that that would be an intervention that's very common. Some people might imagine that, you know, people are born stalkers and that's just who they are. They're evil, for example. Why do you believe the early intervention and the approaches taken in the National Stalking Clinic and STAC are helpful? If we think about the nature of stalking itself, it's an unwanted, repeated behaviour. It's intrusive. It is about someone intruding into your life where they have no legitimate right to be. It's not something that you've done as, as the person who's receiving it. 
in, in many ways, it's really more about the person who's engaging in that behaviour and how they're coping that's led to this experience. And this group reoffends at a very high rate. So around 50% of, of individuals will reoffend often within sort of two years. So I take more of a sort of, I guess, kind of a harm reduction approach or, or thinking about if we were to try and stop that behaviour and protect victims, what are the kind of tools that we've got? And some of those tools will be, yeah, prosecution, restraining orders, custody for some cases. We're, I'm certainly not advocating that, that, that stalkers don't go to, to custody where appropriate. I think there are some serious cases where, where people do need to be in custody for the safety of, of the public and the safety of, of the victim. My question I always come back to as a sort of clinical psychologist and a clinician is, well, what happens when that individual is then released from the, the criminal justice system? What has changed? That's where I think the work needs to come in. We need to work with the individual who's engaging in that behaviour. And I don't think it it shouldn't be an either or position. You know, we shouldn't be providing interventions for perpetrators at the exclusion of support for, for victims. I think they should both happen together. I think there's probably more we should be doing in terms of providing support for victims and ensuring that the sort of their needs are, are met effectively. But when it sort of, I guess, kind of comes down to it, if we're just focusing on the the impact on, on the victim, and, and that is extremely important. So don't get me wrong, we're sort of fishing people out of the river. At some point, we've got to walk upstream and actually go and work with the person who's pushing the people in in the first place to stop people ending up in the river. And that's where I think work like this is is important. And I think the earlier we can intervene, I think the more chance of success we will have in terms of reducing that behaviour because it's less ingrained, there's less um, kind of loss, it's become less habitual as a way of coping. And I think it gives us a chance to to divert people out of that offending pattern, which is, is so harmful for the victims in a way that lasts as well. I keep thinking about all the ways stalking is portrayed around us. From the movies we love, to casually stalking our exes on social media, to even the well-meaning compliment, or oh, you're so lucky they care. These social scripts that we all consume, whether we believe them or not, I wonder... Could these scripts actually encourage stalking behaviour? There is often a narrative around unwanted pursuit. If you just keep going, if you just keep persisting, that person will have a relationship with you that you will, you know, live happily ever after. And that's, you know, that's not necessarily a new thing. It's it's kind of been through literature and media and art for a long period of time. And I think that that does have a an effect. And the stories and the scripts tell me that if I keep going, you know, it's this sense that sort of a, a no is sort of a yes in the future, whereas actually what we need to move to a position is actually a no is actually a no. There's no ambiguity about it. If someone says no, that's unwanted, that's unwanted. That is sort of some of the narratives that we have. And I think that also has an impact on how we think about, you know, not just in terms of the people who are engaging in the behaviour, but in terms of how we perhaps respond to it you know, as a society across services. So those same scripts and narratives will have an impact in terms of perhaps the police officers who are dealing with cases, the court staff, judges, you know. We're, we're all part of that society. We're not external from it. So there is going to be an influence. And I guess this is where specialist units such as ours and the sort of big emphasis on training of staff in terms of actually when these behaviours are happening, what are they about? What are they being driven by? How does this have an impact? 
And actually, how do those kind of myths play into the fact that perhaps, you know, individuals who are being targeted get a, you know, a proper and, and serious response to the concerns they have? think also it has an impact on people recognizing the stalking behavior themselves as well so this sense of oh he's just a bit lovesick or he's just being a bit of a pest or i guess kind of thing that you may hear is you know you should be flattered that someone is continuing to you know really try hard to, to get your attention you know that should be something that's flattering and and that's not the case at all that individual if it's unwanted it is absolutely you know it can be absolutely terrifying and it isn't flattering. What it is is actually that boundary being crossed and, and you're you know, saying no is not being taken seriously. So I think it has a big impact. And that's where sort of, I guess, kind of the education side of things and us starting to change those narratives around what pursuit is and what happens when someone says no is, is, is going to be equally as important to, I guess, kind of the interventions that that we deal with if we're going to deal with the problem as a society. You know, stalking is a behaviour that has been around for a long time it's not new. The people, you know, that I meet as part of my work are often people who you would think of as anybody else. They're people who are employed, they've held jobs, they've been able to, you know, have successful relationships at, at times. What do you think of when I say the word stalker? Is there an image of somebody that comes up or a stereotype of what a stalker looks like? Um, I don't think there's, like, an exact person they, a stalker can be anyone i can be one anyone they are not substantially different to you and me and, and i guess this is i guess kind of the things that sort of perhaps struck me in the work i i've done this you know it takes the right context the right level of pressure the the level of stress or the lack of skill to cope that can tip someone into this kind of behavior and a couple of people who i've, I've recently worked with described this i knew it was making it worse but i didn't have anything else to do I couldn't get out of it. So the more I tried to make it better, the more I made it worse. And then the more I tried, the more I got worse. And I got caught in this cycle of continuing to engage in the same behaviour in the hope that something different changes. It never does. And the situation just escalates and escalates and gets worse. Often we talk, and a lot of the work is perhaps around how to have a healthy relationship, how to have a good relationship. There's very little focus, I think, on how do you deal with a relationship that ends well or that if you're wanting a relationship and the other person doesn't how do you deal with that rejection in an appropriate way and that sort of other side I think we need to, to think a bit more about how do we teach those skills to manage rejection to sit with that discomfort and to and to listen when someone says no Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile with the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, to get 20, 20, 20, to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. One thing I wanted to ask you is there's kind of a a boogeyman image that's been curated around who a stalker is 
in society. Do you think those stereotypes help or hinder society's understandings of stalking? They hinder more than they help, I think. When I think of a stalker, I definitely think of like a parody version of a stalker. It's definitely a man. He's maybe wearing a trench coat. He's sort of walking around maybe with a big newspaper and some fake glasses on. Mostly, I guess, kind of that sort of bogeyman images is really sort of Hollywood sort of film description of stalking, which often tends to focus on the the predatory stalking. So someone who is stalking an individual to really either for sexual gratification or as a way of then perpetrating another offence, which is often, you know, a serious sexual offence and, and in some cases a, a homicide. That group, we know from the research, is, is a very small percentage of those individuals who engage in stalking and, and often and use stalking in a slightly different way to perhaps the other groups because one of the difficulties with identifying a predatory stalker is often the victim is unaware of this obsession until the point of kind of attack, really. So they have a very different sort of way of operating compared to other individuals where it's really about intruding into your life where you've got no business to be in that person really knowing that you're there, which often is where the the other groups perhaps share a, more of a commonality. I think the impact of that kind of view of the sort of person in the dark hoodie down the dark street or, you know, hiding in the bush or following you at distance with thoughts of serious violence in, in their mind often will time play, I think, the, the psychological harm that victims experience. Victims of stalking are at an elevated risk of mental health problems, including PTSD, anxiety and suicidal ideation. Latest research from the University of Kent, in partnership with the Susie Lamplew Trust, found that 91.5% of victims experienced a psychological impact. The other impact as well is, is, is I guess, kind of twofold really, is the people who are engaging in their, that behaviour, which meets the criteria for stalking, is prosecuted and is stalking, is that fixated, unwanted, repeated pattern of targeted behaviour to another person, often then will not recognise that that's what the behaviour is. You know, they'll be saying, well, it was only phone calls or, you know, it wasn't really stalking. It was more harassment because I was sending them messages on social media or, well, I only followed them on the train. I didn't wait outside their house or I didn't, you know, follow them to work. So it's not really stalking because that's the model that, you know, that kind of bogeyman image kind of evokes really is this sort of sexual sort of predator, essentially. And again, that's that's another sort of challenge is individuals going, well, that wasn't what I was trying to do. That wasn't the aim for the behaviour I was engaging in. So that's not stalking. So I think it it clouds it in terms of that recognition as well, you know, both for the people who are experiencing the behaviour and the systems around them. If that's the model of what stalking is, if it doesn't fit that model, it's very difficult to recognise it. That's where we miss an awful lot of cases and an awful lot of harm that, that that's caused. So I think it doesn't help overly well in terms of really thinking about the complexity. But also as well, it, it kind of often labels, you know, that sort of bogeyman is the sense of someone who's acutely mentally ill, perhaps as well, you know, has a delusional disorder, you know, he's got a paranoid psychotic disorder, perhaps. And we know from the evidence that around perhaps 60% of individuals who engage in stalk perhaps have an, a need around mental health. And that may be a direct need or perhaps an indirect one as well. So it may be that, that they're a group who experience anxiety and depression or they experience a direct sort of delusional disorder that's driving the behaviour. So we know there's a higher prevalence um, than the general population, but 
it's kind of the subtlety around that is it, it gets lost. Yeah, it's very easy to see how the nuance is just completely lost with that very one-dimensional image of what stalking looks like. As part of this investigation, I've been trying to find safely a reformed stalker to interview, but it's proving really, really difficult. And I was wondering, why do you think that is? And do you think that I stand a chance in meeting somebody who's come through to the other side? This this is perhaps a very difficult group to to talk openly about, you know, the behaviours they've they've engaged in. And I think partly is to do with that sort of bogeyman image and that sort of labelling, you know. Um, I know, that, you know, Rachel Wheatley's doctorate looked at this and, you know, you had individuals saying actually it, it would, would perhaps even be, you know, easier to have been convicted of a, a more serious offence in some ways in terms of perhaps a homicide or, you know, a serious offence. That would be easier than this label of, of being a stalker. And I also think in, in working with individuals, often it's a point in their life where things have gone really badly wrong for them. Yeah. And the person, you know, and that's caused harm to another person significantly. And often that group just want to move away from that as much as possible and move on with their lives. They, they also might be concerned, I guess, genuinely around if there's as well continuing sort of restrictive conditions. So in terms of restraining orders and, and things like that, you know, there might be a concern that actually if I were to speak, would I be breaching those conditions of order in terms of indirect contact perhaps? So, you know, so there may be concerns around those elements as well, which might be an additional kind of difficulty where you might not see those in, in other offence types really. Can I just ask final thing? Would you professionally be concerned if we spoke to a reformed stalker, whether that could trigger the situation again? Or do you have any professional opinion on that? It's a difficult one. I think kind of those conversations perhaps need to, I mean, this is more me thinking from a clinician, as as someone who would be the patient that I would be working with, I'd be thinking about, we need to think about their level of care and and support um, to ensure that they're not left feeling vulnerable perhaps a follow-up would be helpful or if they're engaged with the team that they're aware so they can check in with that individual. I think there's also another aspect as well around because it's talking about your behaviour onto someone else as well, consideration of sort of the impact potentially that the the victim might feel hearing it. So they're able to identify them themselves through that conversation, you know, that can it can be equally as harmful not just for the, the person who's engaging in that behaviour, but the, the victim. And I think, you know, you'd want an individual perhaps who has who's not been sort of in, in difficulty and is perhaps feeling sort of confident and robust to be able to perhaps cope with that that conversation. And I think it's about just thinking, how do we safeguard that individual who's who's telling their story in perhaps a a time which has caused them a lot of distress and doing that in a sensitive and, and careful way, but also thinking about the victim in in this as well and actually what would it be like for them to hear their their sort of story being told by by the person being in a way how are you feeling going forward now um i feel good in the sense that i feel like i know so much more about this issue and stalking and the impact than i did of course, before entering into this, but it's also just, the issue just seems so much more complex than I ever thought. And I already thought that it was a super difficult thing to treat and diagnose and, you know, deal with in society. I honestly think it just seems 
maybe tenfold more complex than I ever imagined. Thanks for listening to Anatomy of a Stalker. If you've been affected by any of the issues in this episode, resources are available on the advice and support page at crimeandinvestigation.co.uk forward slash advice. In the next episode, a surprise delivery leads me closer to a stalker than I ever expected. So we've actually got the files from Emma to share with you today. Anatomy of a Stalker is a crime and investigation original podcast from Q Podcasts. It's hosted by me, Rachira Sharma, produced by Kim Montgomery and Graham Woodcock, with music and sound design by Tom Hughes and Graham Woodcock. Niall Kalini-Taylor is our executive producer, and the commissioning editors for Crime and Investigation are Sam Pearson and Diana Carter. I have an exclusive offer to listeners of this podcast to receive 50% off a subscription to the Crime and Investigation Play app. You'll be streaming thousands of hours of unmissable true crime content, including Court Cam, Booked, First Day In, and Taking the Stand, all ad-free on Crime and Investigation Play. Head to crimeandinvestigationplay.co.uk, the link is in the episode description, and use the offer code Anatomy of a Stalker when prompted. That's Anatomy of a Stalker to get 50% off the Crime and Investigation Play app. Offer starts 1st of December 2023 and ends 30th of April 2024 and is applicable for the full term of any package you choose to purchase. Subscription auto-renews at the standard package rate after the first term depending on package chosen. Dates may be subject to change at any time. See the episode description for full terms and conditions.